This is the Nasty Kambanis, and you're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm joined today by Lubna Marai, a Syrian activist and journalist who is now based in California and is working on a book, and Anne Bernard, uh, formerly the New York Times Bureau Chief in Beirut, uh, and currently the Edward Murrow Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you both uh, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Both of you in different ways have done a lot of work bringing the voices of regular Syrians, sort of not just everyday Syrians, but Syrians who embody the complexity and ambivalence of, of people who are neither 100% with the regime nor 100% uh, with the opposition. Uh, can you start off by, by talking to us a little bit about who these people are and what what is this mainstream uh, if you will, silent majority or, or, or whatever, however you term it, strain of, of Syrian thought? Uh, for me, those people are those civilians who didn't really take part in the uprising. They just woke up one day and they found themselves in the middle of this war. And uh, like at the end of the day, they understand that the bad things are happening in the country because of the government. But on the other hand, they just want this to stop and they want to go back to their normal life. I think... Many people today in Syria, after eight years of war, they just want stability. They just want the chaos to end. And uh, I mean, like, like it's sad to say this, but yeah, let's say a big part of the Syrian population today consider the uprising as, okay, like something that happened. And because of that, they ended up in like refugee camps or they ended up in in a bad place. These terms like silent majority or stability become loaded because of the way they're used by different parties. But of course, in, in any place, in any time, people want stability in their personal lives. And, and the trajectory in Syria for a lot of people was f- for a period of time, they were willing to, 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 to risk, risk it. Exactly. And then at some point the, the balance, the, the proportion of people willing to give up stability changed. Are we at a tipping point? I think we can look back at uh, Eastern Aleppo, we can look back at Dara, and we see that uh, Dara was the main city that rebelled against the Syrian government. And now, I mean... The first city. The first city and the main city that actually sparked the Syrian uprising. Uh, so at the end of the day, the city today is under the government, uh, under the control of the Syrian government. And... Um, I mean, like, yeah, like, of course, some activists would say that, no, there are still some voices against the Syrian government there, of course. But the majority of the people there, it's not welcome the government because they love the government, because for them, they just want that stability back. And uh, I know this is not a popular opinion among activists, among uh, journalists who are very pro the Syrian, uh, the Syrian uprising, but it's happening and these opinions should be more out there. Well, and Lubna, you're you're not a, a classic reporter. You were an activist who was part of the uprising. What was your path from uh, from activist to storyteller? Between 2012 and 2014, I was working with Reuters in like liberated areas, uh, rebel-held areas, and so I felt like I was doing something. But after I came here, I felt like I, w- I I didn't I didn't want to be that disconnected, and so I started to write and. For- yeah, there is like always like this cliche about like yeah being the voice of the voiceless. I like like Syrians have a voice. Syrians have something to say. They just need a platform. They just need someone to translate their words and bring it to a wider uh, to a wider audience. Who are who are the voices that you are helping give a platform? The to? majority of them are actually people I spend time with in uh, rebel-held areas and um, 
just families I spent time with uh, families they offered me a place to stay and offered me protection um, and I kind of felt some guilt towards these people because at the end of the day I was able to leave I, I was able to come to the United States and start building for like for my future like a different life you know like a new life but I feel the majority of Syrians today are not able to have this opportunity so in a way I feel that I kind of used that privilege that I got to try to help them in some way. And a lot of your reporting for the New York Times in the even in the later stages of the conflict focused on individual stories uh, as well. What kind of people did you look for uh, when you when you were trying to decide who to give a large platform to in your in your coverage? Well, a lot of the time I found myself looking for people who would complicate the story in the sense that, you know, when we talk about this large number of Syrians who have ambivalent or torn feelings about the conflict, we're not even talking about one group of people or one set of ambivalences. There's almost as many uh, versions of that as there are people. So I wanted to look at people who could speak to the impact of this huge upheaval on individual lives, but at the same time show how someone who was might have been committed at one point to one of the multiple causes within this conflict, then uh, taking a critical look at their own side, because I found those voices to be extremely credible because there was so much um, rhetoric and propaganda around the conflict. If you, heard someone who despised the government and felt that it was, uh, you know, the cause of most of Syria's problems, but then that person wants to tell you about the mistakes of the opposition or atrocities by a faction or social problems in an area that's outside of government control, that person is very credible. Give us an example. Well, uh, one of my favorite stories that we did recently was about a group of women, some of them knew each other, some of them didn't, who had been displaced from the suburbs around Damascus um, in the successive surrenders and evacuations from areas that had been held by the rebels and were then taken over by the government. And those women uh, and and their families in some cases, um, along with many fighters and other civilians, chose to take the green buses and go to Idlib, a place that most of them had never been, because they probably correctly felt that they would be be running the risk of arrest if they stayed under government control because of their humanitarian or political activities. So once they got to Idlib, they were trying to continue what they saw as the original purpose of the revolution, which was to empower people and to empower women and to improve people's lives. Those people um, ended up trying to continue building a new alternative Syria outside of government control. And at the same time, they had to fight the jihadis and the gangs and all kinds of um, warlord type people who made their lives really difficult. And especially the religious factions that were trying to keep women under a level of control that they certainly had never uh, lived under in their previous lives in the Damascus suburbs. So this is part of the complicating narrative that, that I think, uh, People in bad faith often abuse and they try and set up moral equivalents between bad rebels and, and the bad regime. Uh, but for ordinary Syrians, 
these are multiple authoritarianisms. Lubna, is it appropriate to listen to that clip you had of the uh, the guy on the bus to Idlib? Yeah, sure, sure. يعطيك العافية أخت لبنان بالنسبة الأول السؤال الأول ليش طلعت على إدلب وما ضليت الدرعة يعني إحنا كان أو أنا شخصيا يعني من المستحيل أظل تحت سيطرة النظام يعني ما في أي أمان Okay, so this clip was uh, was from a part of an interview I did with uh, one of the white helmets who fled, who decided to leave Dara'a to Idlib. Uh, Sometime in the spring of 2018. Yes. And so uh, this guy was telling me, so basically I called the guy and I asked him uh, why you decided to go to Idlib while so many other white helmet rescues actually decided to stay in Dara'a. Uh, he told me that uh, he doesn't trust the government, and uh, but now he's in the bus going to Idlib uh, but he's not. He did not put his name down in the bus as a white helmet rescue because he uh, he's worried that uh, HDS Jubhat al-Nasra might detain him because for Jubhat al-Nasra and most of radical groups, uh, the white helmets are are bad people because they are taking funds from international donors, which is not what um, most of people think here that, oh, they're like jihadis or Qaeda or whatever. This is like, like, like those people are being targeted by every radical group in Syria today because of the, of the, of the money and the support that they're getting. So this rescue worker who's part of a group that is, that is subject to a hate campaign where they're pilloried as being a jihadi jihadi stooges or a jihadi front is afraid that the jihadis are going to execute him if they yeah, find out yeah, that yeah, he's yeah. a white helmet. Yeah, and actually, uh, this person today lives in, in Turkey because after almost 20 days, I was talking to him, just like checking out on him, and he said that well, after he went to Idlib, for some reason, the jihadis knew that he was a rescuer and they started to uh, kind of like harass him. So he he had to flee to Turkey. Yeah, and actually in the same article, I also interviewed someone who decided to stay in Dara. He said, yeah, like for me, being killed by the government is is way better than seeing my family living in a refugee camp in Idlib. And is this person he survived? Died. No, he was executed. He was executed. Yeah. This is uh, one of the awful notes in in so much of of both of your writings is that characters we come to know in your stories at the end of your stories are often uh uh die horrible deaths or or disappear uh almost as as sadly into into the an, an unknown fate what do we learn from these stories you tell about how Syrians see the choices uh they have I mean, the thing I find the most affecting about being a journalist covering this conflict is not only the cost to individuals, but uh, the cost to society of this kind of a dead end um, or this kind of a uh, blank scenario for the future. I mean, we're talking about people who literally risked everything and lost, if you're talking about those who initially were committed to the uprising. And I'm talking about many people that were committed to a peaceful uprising. Um, Many of them ended up uh, being tortured, spending time in prison, being forced into exile, losing everything financially, not seeing their families for years. You also have people who did join the armed opposition and then themselves left it because 
they didn't like the direction it was going. Um, and those people also find themselves having lost everything. So now the question for those who end up in exile or in a part of Syria that wasn't theirs to begin with or stuck under government control is where do we go from here? And I think people that are under government control face a question, face a choice of completely giving up and being silent and going back to the way it was before and repressing all these memories and um, hopes that they had. And that still doesn't obviate them from the risk of death because as we heard from Lubna just now, even someone who chooses to stay under government control could be executed for something that they did previously, which really harmed no one, but but is a red line for the government. Or they can try to find another outlet through humanitarian or civil society work, but as we know, there isn't really independent civil society work. Um, people that are in exile, I of the many people I know in that situation, some of them are working for others, like uh, Mohammed, who we know uh, both of us, who uh, is now um, working for an organization helping other refugees around the world, or people like Libna or or Mazen Darwish in, in Berlin, who is a lawyer working on justice and accountability, people who essentially turn their energies to documenting and um, seeking accountability or writing history. But where does that leave Syria? You know, are we going to have a generation of exiles who spend 20 or 30 or 40 years Outside the country, will they eventually play a role in some future Syria? Or is this just the beginning of a Syrian diaspora that will exist forever? Uh, can I build on that? I think those Syrians who left and kind of have the sense of, of that we lost, the majority of them are not doing anything. The majority of them are very deep into depression. They are they're just like, they found themselves in a place that, okay, I risked everything and I lost everything for uh, a better future, a better country. And now I'm in a new place that I don't even speak the language and I have start over. And you won't believe how many of my friends that we were like all the time together between 2011 and 2014, they're just in Europe doing drugs. I don't, I don't want to say it is understandable, but at the end of the day, like the amount of risk people took to like change the system and just the fact that like people rebelled against this government is like a huge thing and so they felt that they did this massive courage thing and now they're they're like living on handouts and for me that's 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 really upsetting and yeah like most of my friends they're not really doing anything and i cannot blame them you know well and, and presumably uh people living under government control must be suffering similar forms of disillusionment because the regime is a terrible regime and that's why there was an uprising in the first place and it's only gotten worse. So even those, uh, you know, with the exception of the tiny elite that really does thrive under, under the regimes uh, or, or, or as part of the regime's mode of control, most Syrians living under the regime have really terrible lives where they're constantly surveilled and at risk of torture and arrest and arbitrary And you can violence. see that from the suicide rate that is jumping. I mean, but this is not something people talk about because for us, suicide is like, okay, you, you just don't talk about it. Uh, recently, last year, I think a year and a half ago, uh, there was this activist who... Um, started Facebook Live on her, uh, like, like on her phone and she jumped. 
Like she committed suicide on Facebook Live. And that was the first moment where actually activists started to address mental health issues and they started to address depression. I feel, I feel when revolutions fail, it's not just like the chaos in the country, just like the, you know, like like the mental... You could call it moral injury. Yeah. This is a concept that is yeah. talked about and is sort of coupled with PTSD. It's different from PTSD. It's it's the sense that that um, you've witnessed something or experienced something that is so unjust that it that it questions your faith in humanity. Yeah. And I think a lot of people speak about that. Uh, a lot of Syrians speak about how they just can't believe that it turned out this way and that there's no solution and nobody cares. Yeah. Um, and I should add, even people that were on the side of the government speak that way. Um, one of the last people I talked to before I left Beirut earlier this year uh, is someone who, you know, is quite involved with the government's war effort and said that he was thinking about getting smuggled on a raft to Europe because... He was so depressed. He felt like he had given his all to this cause. And even though they won, quote unquote, he felt that he was serving a bunch of warlords and that the fabric of society had been ripped apart and that members of his family were now uh, ready to engage in prostitution because they were in such dire straits after so many people died fighting for the government and the army without getting any decent pension and without really winning a country that they would even want to live in, even as the victors. Yeah, and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in Jebli. I'm from Jebli, by the way. Um, and he was telling me, like, like, you won't believe how many soldiers, like wounded soldiers who fought for the government, who lost, you know, like uh, limbs. They are just like living in depression today because you didn't only just like lost your like your life, basically, and you have to live your like the rest of your life on a like um, on a bed, but you feel that no one appreciates you, and the government does not take care of those wounded soldiers. And at the end of the day, although people think that all Alawites are with the government, I mean, like that sense of betrayal, that sense of that they gave everything for this government, they like they lost their lives for this government, and and now no one appreciates them, and especially now, as you said, like the government won. The government considered them a captive constituency that they could count on their support and their sacrifice because of the assumption, which the government also um, fomented, that they would all be wholesale slaughtered by any uh, regime other than the existing one. And so the government doesn't feel like they have to thank them or anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is this is like, this is very understandable. Like just look looking at the history of, of the Alawites, uh, before Hafez al-Assad, the Alawites were just like exiled in mountains. They were treated really badly. And so imagine if you live in a very, uh, like, like in a very far village and the only access you have to information is like a dunya TV. And the dunya TV is telling you that, hey, listen, there's like this uh, terrorist, there's those uh, Salafis. And if you don't side, side with the government, you will end up like your ancestors just in the mountains exiled. Um, and most of the most of the people that I know from from the Alawite community sided with the government out of fear, not out of love for Bashar al-Assad. And um, this is also this is like a very important topic. I feel it's very underreported. Is that not all Alawites were were like living very good life and they had like so much money because of their connection with the government? 
the majority of them were just like poor people in the mountains and then the government were able to use those people as soldiers. What can be done to protect civilians in Syria's Idlib province? A Century Foundation report explores policy options for promoting diplomatic resolutions to one of the last unresolved hotspots in the Syrian war. To read this and other TCF research into the Syrian conflict, go to our website, tcf.org, and look for the Syria tab under World. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and we've been talking with Lubna Marai and Anne Bernard. We were just talking about the the Alawites, who are the 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 sect of the say ruling family of, of Syria. Uh, and it seems like when you actually get stories about real people, uh, real Alawites, let's say, who who aren't uh, members of Bashar al-Assad's cabinet, what what you find is this uh, frustratingly not simplistic account. Uh, people who are, are are dying in droves for the government. Uh, I think uh, uh, a demographic where almost all the young men are dead uh, because they've been drafted and have fought, uh, and yet who do not benefit, uh, at least in, in overt ways, uh, from the regime's rule. And also, uh, this is a group that, 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 if reporting is honest, is targeted by a lot of the, the, the people in the uprising who are sectarian. They're not, they're not all uh, civil society, non-sectarian, enlightened liberals. Some of them are pretty, are, are pretty awful when it comes to uh, minority rights. Uh, so what, what, do, what do poor Alawites see as their future in a uh, quote-unquote victorious uh, uh, outcome of the war? Um, I think they're too depressed to look at the future or like what that victory brought to them, but they look at their injuries or they look at their dead friends as they lost limbs or they lost their friends, but at the end of the day, they were able to protect themselves. For them, um, the victory of the government means their survival. And as you said before, yeah, like in 2000, summer of 2013, ISIS was in uh, Latakia Mountains and uh, they were burning shrines and they were like killing families, like mass numbers. I mean, of course, like the opposition uh, activists don't really talk about this because like if we talked about this, then we will uh, kind of like admit, uh, admit that we are, we failed in a way. But well, I mean, there so, was there was a failure, right? There was a failure. It was a failure. It was a failure that we were not able to bring those people to our sides, but also in the same time, welcoming those jihadis in the Syrian uprising or in the Syrian war was very understandable. You cannot expect people to to like to be bombed on daily basis and like starved and put under siege, and then at the end, you know, like and like three years. Uh, from that, they are still talking about like minority rights or like oh, all, all Syrians love each other. Especially that the government from day one um, were calling them terrorists and they were calling them Salafis. Also, a great portion, maybe even the majority of Sunni Syrians, never sided with the uprising as well. Which is which is an interesting piece of the story that I think bubbles into view from time to time, but. 
I'm not sure casual observers or even activists really understand or, or, or can can explain. How how do the how do the people you talk to and the stories you've you've told uh, help us understand the sort of fence sitting Sunnis or the 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 Sunnis who are on neither side uh, but certainly didn't join the uprising. I think uh, those people who who didn't really join the uprising like they 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 didn't they didn't see that uprising is an uprising for them. You know, like for them, uh, the first red flag was that they this uprising uh, was mainly organized in mosques for them. As Adonis said, like, oh, I will never join an uprising that uh, left from mosques. But but also, there were so many people in Syria who found themselves above these uprising that I, th- I think for me, the main problem in Syria, honestly, was not sectarianism, was classism. Because like always... Uh, the people in cities and in, in, in big cities, they look down on Dara. They look down on people in Qamishli. They look down on on like uh, this poor neighborhoods and homes, and um, and even in like Latakia, when 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 there was like huge demonstrations back in 2011, even for those people who don't like the government, they look down on the uprising or they look down on the protests because they were coming from poor neighborhoods. And I think this is this is this is something that's not really kind of understood when it comes to the Syrian uprising. Also, I mean, the and the uh, the poli- was it a policeman or a soldier that you wrote about who died in uh, in uh, Tadmor? He he was a policeman, but he was essentially being used as a soldier. You, the the police were often deployed as if they were soldiers and as cannon fodder. And uh, he was also from from the lower classes, right? And he was fighting on the government side, and and, and essentially sent off to die to to assure, assure death in a in a doomed battle. Yes, and he was Sunni. And did he believe in the in the cause that he was fighting for? Um, you know, he was a simple person who just believed that his duty as a policeman was to protect order, and that. This was his job and his family had always been in professions like the police and they certainly weren't, you know, big uh, ideological or personal cult of personality supporters of Bashar al-Assad. I mean, they didn't uh, go around chanting, you know, God, Syria and Assad, but they they did stick to their role. And so he was just doing his, his duty. He was doing his service. We met him when we were, um, he was one of a huge crowd of minders <laughs> following us around uh, Palmyra uh, in 2014. And um, we, we actually managed to stay in touch with him. And he expressed lots of day-to-day frustration, just the way a U.S. soldier might express frustration from their foxhole in Afghanistan or, or Iraq, um, wondering, what's the mission? Is, am, I really, is, is, am I really serving this mission? Are my officers really having my best interests at heart? You know, he, he pointed out a lot of, uh, you know, weird decisions they made, like to evacuate all the senior officers from Palmyra, right, when they were sending um, grunts like him, even without proper weapons, into the last battle with with ISIS. And he was eventually hunted down and killed by ISIS, we later confirmed. So the so the ones who who do most of the dying are these are, are the the poor or the disenfranchised or the lower classes. Uh, but in 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 Syria, you could I think argue that the overwhelming majority of the population has 
uh, no political power and is disenfranchised. Even the even the middle class and 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 some of the wealthy are are essentially powerless in a in a in a under a mafia uh, regime. Uh, but in this in this new chapter that we're in, where where the regime feels like it's won and is really re-extending control over almost the entire country minus Idlib and, and, and some of the desert in the north, what changes, if anything, uh, for, for the, the millions who are inheriting the, 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 the ruined and broken Syria uh, at, at the end of this war? I think the main thing that changed that people are becoming more um, brave in criticizing mistakes by the government, but they will never criticize the president. They will criticize like prime ministers and ministers. Uh, but even even those who try to like push the line, even from the government supporters, they will take they will be taken into into detention. There is this famous uh, journalist. Uh, he's he's a very pro Syria, very pro government. Uh, he has. Uh, uh, he's the admin of one of the biggest uh, Facebook groups called Dimashq al-An, Damascus Now. And I don't know, he th- he, I think he posted something on his Facebook that um, kind of, not crit- even not criticizing the president. It was just like very kind of like low-key that if the president knew what was happening, actually he will not be happy. Uh, and then this guy has been detained for like a month now. And what even worse that no one is talking about his detention. And he's like a, a big figure in the propaganda within the Syrian government circles. So it kind of gives you a sense of what Syria is like today. I mean, I think what we're looking at is even more than before an atmosphere where order is going to be maintained by force and by threat because of the fact that people are emboldened. And it's like the unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. So this new attitude cannot be completely put back in the box. Yes, Syrians are very crushed and very disappointed and disillusioned and depressed, but for sure they've now seen the multiplicity of voices that can exist and the possibility of uh, criticisms over social media through demonstrations. And as you've been saying, the pro-government community, the Alawite minority, maybe the Christian minority, many people are going to be asking now on the pro-government side, what about our piece of this? What about um, you know treating us better? Forget about the other people. And the government is going is is weaker, is more fragmented, is facing more competition for power from the warlords that it empowered. Not to mention the Iranian and Russian uh, players. So how does it keep control with all this by being harsher, by being more inflexible, even while being weaker? So I think that we're looking in the long run at a very actually volatile situation, not a stable one. Understand that justice is not a Syrian luxury or a Syrian matter. It's all of us, especially in Europe, especially in Middle East. It's our problem. And met with uh, a man named Mar- Mazen Darwish. Tell, tell us a little bit about who, who Mazen is um, and, and what he's talking about in this clip. So Mazen Darwish is a, a longtime human rights lawyer uh, who was imprisoned even before the uprising and after the uprising for many years and uh, survived many years of torture, now is based in Berlin and has been instrumental to the efforts to document and seek accountability for 
the war crimes, especially the torture and arbitrary detentions. Um, so I went to meet with Mazen in Berlin and I just asked him, you know, what does it mean for the world if that, that Assad has won using these particular tools, these tools of maximum force and repression against what began as a civilian uprising. Mass torture, mass detention, uh, slaughter of civilians, indiscriminate slaughter of civilians. Exactly. And I said, you know, what's the upshot for the rest of the world? And he said, well, uh, it's not just a question for Syrians domestically. He said, I'm, I'm based here in Berlin. He said, people have forgotten um, World War II. He said that, you know, democracy is not in the DNA of people or of leaders or those in power. It's something that you have to fight for. And, you know, when these types of tactics are victorious in one place, uh, they will maybe be tolerated and victorious in other places. So he said the dictators in Tunisia and Egypt who were toppled by uprisings are now looking at Assad and saying, wow, we should have been tougher. We should have killed more people. Maybe we'd still be around. And he said that he predicted years ago that if these tactics were uh, tolerated and, and victorious, then it would actually threaten human rights in Europe and beyond. And he said he's now been vindicated by the rise of the right wing in Europe, which is partly in response to the refugee crisis that flooded into Europe as a result of the atrocities in Syria. Before the uprising, one of the overwhelming impressions I had of Syria was of inscrutability. Unless you were very close to someone and had a personal friendship with them, it was almost impossible to hear someone's story, whatever that story was, even if it wasn't particularly interesting uh, or, or, or political, uh, because people were trained uh, by circumstance and experience with the government to know that saying anything to anyone who is a stranger could blow up in your face in, in ways you could, couldn't even think of. So it's better to just never say anything at all to anybody. That changed radically in 2011 on all sides of the spectrum. And I wonder, can that ever go back? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think... I think even in the, if the revolution failed in so many ways, I think it succeeded in that in that one particular thing that people felt that they can change things and it's okay to speak out and 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 their voice matters. It sounds cliche, but or or even if it doesn't matter, they're just going to use that. They're going to use that. Yeah, I mean, like even even on the government side, there is like tons of Facebook groups now where people are just like arguing about what what like those. Not the gov- not the government in general, just like some uh, ministers doing wrong and how they can make the country better. Um, I don't know. I I, th- I think yeah, there is definitely something. Of course, something changed. And I mean, in spite of all the dark things we've been talking about, the fact that there are still some people who are so resilient that they still want to find a way to help and make a difference, even if it's on a smaller scale. Um, you know, I think that is always inspiring and. You know, another thing about Syrians is that they love their cities and they have, you know, it's a very special, beautiful country. And even on the level of we are going to restore and repair our little corner and we're going to reopen our shop and we're going to, you know, open a new bar, or, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, you know, uh, there, there have been a lot, there have been some simplistic stories saying, oh, look, people are partying again in Babtuma in the old city of Damascus. Everything's great. But, you know, 
I don't condemn those people for partying. You know, I mean, on the one hand, it, it's used as a, as a trope to show that everyone loves the government, which is not true. But the fact is that people do want to have a good time and they do want the fabric of society to um, to to continue. And you can see that on some level that happens, just like you look at Beirut, um, you know, to to a generation after the end of its civil war and somehow it's still Beirut, you know, so... I do have some hope there. And it's interesting to see journalists and activists like you continuing to find people inside Syria who are able and willing to get in touch with you uh, and speak to you and and share their stories for publication, which, again, it was only 10 years ago that it would have been virtually impossible even for a Syrian activist to get other Syrians to go on record even anonymously and and say the kinds of things that people now routinely – uh, do share. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on the on the podcast. Uh, you've been <laughs> listening to Lubna Marai and Anne Bernard uh, talking about uh, Syria and the voices of the voiceless that they've done so much work to share with us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.